This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA here on this Tuesday. There's a lot happening in the news today. Some of you might have woken up to headlines that President Joe Biden is considering declaring a climate emergency. We're going to talk to Quill Robinson of the American Conservation Coalition in segment three about what that type of declaration might mean. And we're also going to speak today with Sigrid Johans. She's the Associate Director of the Public Lands Council. And we've seen some changes to the Endangered Species Act and the way it's applied, particularly across rural areas. Sigrid's going to give us an update on what to expect there. And at the end of the show, we're going to talk to Josh Linville. The International Trade Commission made a decision yesterday on fertilizer, kept the price a little cheaper for American growers. Josh will give us an update on to what that means for the industry here as we head into this summer. Before we talk about all of that, however, we are going to talk markets. And today is indeed a Tuesday. And it's a turnaround Tuesday here as we take a look at the grain markets. Joining me to bring us up to speed is Darren Newsom of Newsom Analysis. Darren, thank you so much for joining us today. And good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on again. Let's talk what's going on today. Darren, we are seeing red all down the screen here in the grains, and we're seeing red in the U.S. dollar. Huge sell-off in the dollar, but it's not doing the grain complex any favors, is it? No, it, it's really not. There's a, there's a number of things at play uh, here on Tuesday morning. Um, to me, the thing that really jumps out at me was the fact, you know, we look up and down the grain and oilseed complex, could not hold near Monday's highs at the close. Uh, we saw, you know, U.S. stock indexes starting to come under pressure after an early rally to start the week. In fact, those same indexes closed lower. Uh, and I can't help but think that we're seeing some residual pressure, some follow-through pressure on the grain loyalty complex from that close Monday uh, here early Tuesday. Bottom line, investment traders just don't want to play right now. Uh, you know, uh, weather forecasts still hot and dry for the next week or so, uh, but it's just not enough to bring funds back in. And, they, and if they're going to be back, they might not be back until early August when they don't have to worry about the August so and September soybean contracts and the September uh, corn contract. They can go straight into the D uh, corn, straight into no beans. So a bit of a waiting game to see if they even get interested coming back into, into the commodity markets in general. Darren, from a technical perspective, looking at corn here, D at 586 and change. Where does that put us on the chart? How close are we to some uh, support down below? The initial support, you know, on a short term is the four day low of uh, came in last week at uh, 576 and three quarter. So that's kind of the key. Now, what's going to get interesting, though, is that price goes off the board as far as a four day low at today's close. So most likely, whatever today's low is, that's the new four day low. And so that really sets us up for a, pro for a, a problem on Wednesday, a bearish ind indicator on Wednesday. If we close near our low today and then move lower again overnight, okay, so we've got a new four-day low. That's a very short-term signal. So, you know, from a technical point of view, things don't look, you know, this is a pretty, this is a pretty rough go here, uh, you know, after, after yesterday's spike high, after Monday's spike high. So, you know, a lot of folks are going to be watching that. doesn't really change the intermediate-term picture as long as we continue to hold the recent low of 66 and a half, which is, you know, could come back into play. Uh, but we also have to remember on the long-term monthly charts for both December corn and for the cash market, they both topped out in May and June. So long-term highs look to be in. Now we're kind of waiting to see if we can get some inter intermediate term strength to come back into these markets. Darren, same question. Looking over at the soybeans, again, we've seen tremendous volatility. November down 35 cents and change so far today. Where do we sit technically towards support levels here in the bean complex? Yeah, you know, the, the key here is we're still up for the week, uh, at least from what I can see, because last Friday we closed at 1342 and a quarter. 
Uh, today's low, what I'm showing, has been 44 and a half. So despite all this volatility, we're still seeing soybeans on the plus side of unchanged for the week. Now, again, four-day low down at 13, 15, and three-quarter. If we don't take that out today, tomorrow's four-day low bumps up to 13, 17, and three-quarter. So, you know, there's still a little room down there. Uh, for the soybean market from a short-term technical perspective. But again, it's the same issue. We just can't get any investment investment buyers uh, interested in this market at this point, despite the fact fundamentals are still bullish, despite the fact that weather looks hot and dry for you know the foreseeable future. Investment traders just are not interested in playing at this point. Well, and Darren, as you mentioned, it's because they're watching the technical picture. But of course, I forget which one of Newsom's laws it is. But as you say, fundamentals win in the end. So from a fundamental standpoint, how do the spreads look in the corn market right now as we get through 2022 into 23? You know, what we're what we see in the corn market uh, is is a carry of about eight cents in the D's to July uh, future spread, which covers the 22-23 marketing year. So you've got an eight cent carry, but that only covers about 11% calculated full commercial carry, and 33% or less is considered bullish. In soybeans, we actually still closed the no July spread Monday at an inverse. And you know, as Horton here, as the Horton the elephant told us, you know, an inverse is an inverse, no matter how small, and that's just and that's the case. Inverses are always bullish, and doesn't matter how large they are, it's uh, you know, it's still a bullish situation in soybeans. But the key here is basis. You know, and what we're seeing in a lot of these key commodities, we can talk about crude oil, we can talk about corn, we can talk about soybean, is we've got basis in overages. And, and so, in other words, we've got cash running well above the futures market. So the physical value of the market is still much higher than the paper value. And again, this tells us supply and demand, still strong. Demand for tight supplies, still there. It's just no one wants to trade paper. Darren, as you're looking at that strong demand on the soybean side, are we still seeing exceptional demand from U.S. crushers? Is the margin still there for them to be running full speed ahead? You know, it's likely backed off basically because there's no supply. And I don't care what the official numbers are. We can look at what the cash market's telling us, and the supplies just simply aren't there. So I think it's probably very similar to what we're seeing in on the export side, where we've seen a pretty good slowdown on, on exports. It is seasonal, but on crush, it would not be surprising to see some slowdown there as well, just because, you know, we just simply don't have the soybeans to crush right now. Darren, if it sounds like the Ukraine might be able to start shipping wheat, is there more downside potential in that wheat market? You know, wheat has been fascinating. And then it's a, certainly a possibility if somehow they open up the corridors uh, that allows Ukraine uh, wheat to move into into the rest out, out to the rest of the world. But now we have to take into account Europe is being baked right now. That's all the headlines at this point. Uh, so you know, that's going to cause further cuts into global supplies because there's a lot of wheat grown in Europe. So now we have to take that into account. But with all of that, and, and given the sell-off that we're seeing in the dollar, we still can't get any buying interest, any commercial buying interest in wheat. All right, we'll see how that managed money makes its way back into the markets. Darren Newsom of Newsom Analysis, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you again for having me on, Mike. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk to Seeger Johans next about changes in the Endangered Species Act. You'll want to stay tuned for more AOA coming up next. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, Farm Radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. 
Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The American Coalition for Ethanol is hosting its 35th annual conference in Omaha, Nebraska, Wednesday, August 10th through Friday, August 12th. This must-attend event for industry leadership features timely updates on ethanol public policy, market development, board of director training, and more. This event combines the detail of high-level training courses with all the fun of a family reunion. For event details, visit ethanol.org. That's ethanol.org. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks for tuning in today. Thanks for making AOA a part of your Tuesday. You know, if you pay attention to agriculture and ag politics, one of the trends we've seen here over the past two years is the back and forth between presidential administrations on the different laws and executive actions that they declare. We've seen this with WOTUS. We're seeing this with the Endangered Species Act. Most recently, President Trump changed a number of components in the Endangered Species Act. And earlier this month, a judge in California threw out several of those. Joining me today to bring us up to speed is Sigrid Johans. She's the Associate Director of the Public Lands Council. Sigrid, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about what happened on July 5th. The court in California threw out several changes that the Trump administration had made to the Endangered Species Act. Sigrid, what were the three big ones? Absolutely. So the judge in the Northern District Court of California threw out three rules that were finalized in 2019 under the Trump administration. And the first one of those dealt with the 4D section of the Endangered Species Act. And that refers to uh, non-essential, I'm sorry, excuse me, Uh, threatened species and sort of the protections that they are entitled to. And so what that 2019 rule did was it limited the scope of restrictions uh, that can be put on agricultural producers and other natural resource users in the range for a threatened species. Now, with the vacature from this court decision, producers are going to be subject to a lot more restrictions because those threatened species are going to be treated essentially as if they were endangered species. So that up the level of uh, regulation that producers are subject to. Another Now, Sigrid, uh, before we move yeah. on from 4D, that seems interesting to me. Why do we have the category of endangered and have them with specific protections and then a separate category for threatened if they're going to get the same protections as the endangered species category? That's a great question, Mike. Uh, and in our opinion, getting rid of that distinction is, is problematic because there is a difference. One of the key things that is good about having a 4D rule is that it allows for some flexibility that reflects the fact that not every species is facing uh, population decline or challenges uh, you know, with their habitat due to human causes. Some species are, but some are not. 
Uh, one great example of this is the northern long-eared bat, uh, which was recently subject to a proposed uplisting to go from threatened to endangered. Uh, and that bat is declining due to a disease that spreads from animal to animal uh, and has nothing to do, for example, with farming or ranching. So there's a big problem when you get rid of that distinction and act like every species is endangered due to human causes. It does away with the flexibility and nuance that is really important for protecting wildlife, but also allowing, you know, agriculture cultural producers to continue doing conservation work and, and making a living on the land. All right. So that 4D has now reverted to the pre-Trump era. Everything's in the bucket, Seeger. That's one change. What was the next one? Certainly. So one of the changes the Trump administration made uh, was to require that federal agencies, uh, specifically the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, consider economic impact as a factor when they are making a decision to list a species or designate habitat. That was a very uh, important reform that NCBA and PLC were highly supportive of because these decisions, even though they're made on paper in Washington, D.C., have a real economic impact on rural communities, most especially on natural resource users like agricultural producers. So we were very glad to see that that economic impact uh, be included in the discussion. Now, after this vacature, uh, economic impact is no longer required to be a part of that conversation. And that's that's just done, right? I mean, it's it no longer would we have to take into conversation what the impact of listing such and such would be on a community, even if it might completely obliterate a ranching community, for example, on the plains. You know, that is correct. And that sort of gets at a larger point, Mike, that is problematic about this court decision. This is not a rulemaking process. Uh, we expected the Biden administration to roll back these three rules. Uh, we knew that this was going to be a target for them coming in after the Trump administration. What we did not expect that this was going to happen overnight through a court-issued vacature. What that means is basically that once the court rules and vacates those rules, they're stripped from the books overnight. There's no real opportunity there uh, to fight back in like a formal comment process like we do uh, for a number of regulations. So that's something that we were very disturbed to see. It contributes to a lot of regulatory whiplash that is not good for producers and ultimately not good for wildlife or land management either. That's a great point, Sigrid. And as you mentioned, there's there's no legislative regulatory follow-up we can do to change these back. We would need new legislation, right, under the ESA or a, an additional court case? Well, yes, yes and no. We would need additional regulations, uh, and it, I feel almost out of line saying it because, as a rule, cattle producers don't need more regulation. Uh, but in this case, we are going to be looking for opportunities where we can get involved in that rulemaking process. We do expect the Biden administration to rewrite some of these rules, put their own spin on it, and that's a process where we'll be submitting comments. We'll be talking to regulators here in Washington, D.C. We'll be meeting with allies you know, of agriculture on the Hill and really trying to make sure that some of those good aspects of those Trump administration reforms, good things like flexibility for threatened species under 4D, flexibility in, in considering economic impact, flexibility in how interagency consultation takes place and sort of trying to streamline and cut down on that process. Those are all things that we're still going to be fighting for in any new rules that are written and, and in any new regulations that we see coming out of this administration. Sigrid, you mentioned that interagency communication. That's a huge part of the deal when all of these federal agencies are looking at an issue. How did the changes on the 5th impact interagency communication on Endangered Species Act issues? Yeah, so interagency consultation is something that is required under Section 7 of the ESA. And essentially, that means that federal agencies have to talk to each other. If they're contemplating a decision at USDA or at another agency that is potentially going to impact a threatened or endangered species, they have to go check with Fish and Wildlife about it. And the Trump administration uh, imposed some internal deadlines uh, and some other uh, tweaks to the process that made that a much quicker and more efficient consultation. Now, reverting back again to this pre-2019 state, thanks to this court decision, there are some of those mechanisms and flexibilities are off the table now. So that process is going to get longer. It's going to become more burdensome. It is a perfect example of uh, an increase in a you know bureaucracy and red tape, essentially, that may not look like much from a desk in Washington, but that long delay adds to a lot of uncertainty for producers who are, are trying to make decisions about their land uh, and are potentially in the range for a threatened or endangered species.
Absolutely. And so much of this discussion comes back to definitions. Sigrid, I was wondering if we could talk about the definition of habitat. That's another thing that changed under the Trump administration. And now I understand Biden has rolled that back. How has that changed? Absolutely. There are a lot of things happening in the ESA space, as, as you know, Mike. So the habitat definition uh, under the Trump administration was written uh, in partially in response to a Supreme Court decision uh, that, that ruled that in order to be designated critical habitat, land first must be habitat for a species. Now, that sounds pretty self-explanatory, but believe it or not, that's something that had to be had to be argued in front of the Supreme Court. And the reason is because you, if you don't have that standard, you can have geographic areas that are designated critical habitat based on some hypothetical need in the future rather than conditions today on the ground that can support uh, one or more life processes, one or more life phases of a specific species. So that was a decision that we were quite happy to see. Now, uh, with that repeal of the Trump administration's definition, the Biden administration has opened the door to be able to designate critical habitat in areas that cannot currently support a species, but their argument is that due to the uh, exigent circumstances of climate change, we might see a situation 100, 1,000 years from now where an endangered species needs to move to a completely different place. That, to us, is, is highly irresponsible and doesn't make a whole lot of ecological sense. If a polar bear can't survive today in Florida, it doesn't make sense to have critical habitat for polar bears in Florida. That is the truth, Sigrid. That certainly strikes me as odd. So with all of this action taking place in the ESA space right now, we're in an election year, you know, emotions are high. What can we do? What are some opportunities for ranchers, folks who work on the ground to fight back against this? Or how can they stay engaged? That's a great question. I think first and foremost, always, always pick up the phone and talk to your elected officials. Make sure they know what you're concerned about uh, from a legislative side. But on the regulatory side, I would encourage everybody to go to publiclandscouncil.org. We have a page on our website that has open comment periods. And one of those comment periods right now is about uh, an ESA rule. So we encourage everyone to go there, uh, sign on, or send us an email if you need any help drafting those comments. Fantastic, folks. Public Lands Council, get on there, Google that up, check them out, and get those comments heard. This impacts your bottom line and your operation. Secret Johans, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk more about government action with Quill Robinson when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Tune in to AOA the first Wednesday of every month to hear from the National Corn Growers Association in our new segment, The Monthly Grind. NCGA is made up of nearly 40,000 members, and, you know, of that, there's more corn farmers that pay dues into checkoffs, and NCGA manages it with the staff in St. Louis and in D.C. here. We get together, we have the action teams that the officers, John Lender, Chris Edgington, Tom Hegg put together, and we bring everybody's ideas together. And whether you're a small state, a big state, whether you're interested in livestock, new usage, ethanol, everything comes together here. We talk. It's kind of that clearinghouse where all the ideas come together. And, it, you know, it's been done since, um, you know, NCJ was founded in 1957. So it's very important that... Uh, we have that one voice. This monthly grind recap is sponsored by the National Corn Growers Association. Be sure to tune in the first Wednesday of every month for the monthly grind here on AOA. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look here at the grain trade so far this morning, we are moving to the downside, giving back uh, pretty much all of what we saw yesterday in the trade with corn, beans, and wheat futures lower with soybeans leading the way to the downside, quarter beans both with double-digit losses, while the wheat market is a little more uh, towards the unchanged side, a little more firm, but still mostly lower. 
We see that uh, spring wheat, good to excellent crop rating of 71%, while harvest continues for the winter wheat crop and things looking fairly good there in many areas as well. A second straight week of steady national corn condition ratings is also giving the bears more hope that the current crop can meet or exceed USDA expectations despite the continuance of a hot and dry summer and more of the same on the way this week. We see that uh, soybean rating as well, only going down one percentage point, so things holding fairly steady here for both forecasts are a little more variable after this week though no real widespread rain event is in the cards for the midwest here just yet livestock trade feeder cattle are still holding higher with some triple digit strength while live cattle and lean hogs are a bit more mixed even with the grain markets moving lower the dow jones up 346 crude oil down a dollar 27 at 101.33 a few numbers in the trade. September corn down 22 at three quarters, 589 and a half. August soybeans down 38 and three quarters, 1458 and a half. August bean meal down 520 a ton, 429.30. August bean oil down 171 points, 61.49. Chicago wheat September down two at three quarters, 810. September KC wheat down 10 at 864. Spring wheat September down 14 at a quarter, 924 and three quarters. Live cattle for August down 27, 135, 35. August feeder cattle up 197, 178.65, and August hogs down 67, 111.45. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We are talking about federal action today on the show. We just heard from Seeger Johannes there at the Public Lands Council about the changes to the Endangered Species Act that have happened earlier this month. And perhaps some of you woke up this morning to see the headlines that President Biden is potentially considering to declare a climate emergency in this country. That was reported earlier this morning by the Washington Post. It's being cheered on by several Democratic senators who are frustrated that their legislation on Capitol Hill has not moved forward, and they'd like to see some more action take place to fight climate change. Well, this is a big change, and it's certainly very interesting. I wasn't sure what all it would mean, so I reached out to some folks who keep track of this stuff, and joining me today to talk about it is Quill Robinson. He's the Vice President of Government Affairs at the American Conservation Coalition, and Quill, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Good to be here. Let's start with the climate legislation that the Democrats were hoping to get through the Senate. Quill, what was in there that they believed was going to impact climate change in a big way? Sure. So for the last several months, there's been discussion about uh, a reconciliation package that would be pushed through by Democrats. And as part of that package, Democrats had put a priority on including some climate provisions. Uh, Now, there have been negotiations back and forth, but as of a couple of weeks ago, the thought was that there would be roughly... $300 $300 billion or so of subsidies and credits for clean energy. And that was something that was broadly agreed upon um, by Democrats. Uh, but as we found out in the last couple of weeks, Senator Manchin from West Virginia decided that um, he was not going to support that. And obviously, he's a critical vote in the Senate. So it, the, the hopes of passing um, you know, that roughly $300 billion in, in, in tax credits and subsidies through the Senate essentially fell apart when Senator Biden came out and said that he was not going to support that given concerns about inflation. 
So with that being the case, Quill, and I know you keep track of what's happening on Capitol Hill very closely. Do you think that the legislative ends to get these things uh, done are DOA, at least through the election? I mean, I think that in terms of reconciliation, it, it appears to be dead on arrival. Um, now, I, I think that the, the, the challenge here is that there are, I mean, the thing is that there are many other ways, other avenues that Democrats can potentially pursue, even with Republicans, to make progress on this issue of climate change. There's a lot of different ways to address this issue, but this particular avenue, this particular approach, having a big, expensive package um, to support clean energy probably is, is not going to move forward at this point. All right. So now the Democrats, uh, believing that something must be done about climate very soon, are pushing this administration to declare a national emergency, a climate emergency. Quill, have we ever seen anything like this done before? Well, this is, you know, unprecedented. I I think, you know, we saw this announcement come out today that President Biden is going to potentially declare a climate emergency. It sounds big, dramatic, uh, ambitious, but it seems like even the administration doesn't exactly know what this means right now. So we're all sort of scratching our heads trying to figure out what exactly uh, would happen after he declared a climate emergency. Now, some environmental groups that have been calling for a climate emergency for years now uh, have suggested that the president could potentially limit uh, oil and gas exports, um, limit private investment into fossil fuels domestically here in the United States, and then also use this declaration through executive action to, to expedite clean energy projects. Now, I want to say, I, I think that um, a lot of these things might actually be quite counterproductive at this point. You know, as I, as I mentioned, Senator Manchin had major concerns around uh, inflation and also uh, energy affordability right now. And I think that while the Biden administration is probably trying to gin up support among its base by declaring climate emergency, potentially, uh, this might actually be very counterproductive and actually drive energy prices further up and also limit the export of uh, American energy and fossil fuels, which are, in fact, a lot cleaner than the fossil fuels that other countries export themselves. So obviously, like I said, we don't know exactly what this is going to involve, but based on what some environmental groups have have suggested, this could actually prove to be quite a counterproductive measure. And Quill, you said something that was very, very interesting to me right there. This idea of a climate emergency is relatively new to me. I heard about it this morning. Uh, To me, it seems like it's something that has just jumped out whole cloth from this administration. But you mentioned there have been organizations pushing for this kind of federal action, the idea of a climate emergency for some time. Have they just realized this might be their best opportunity to push for something like this and now it's a full court press? Sure. Well, I think a lot of environmental groups and a lot of environmental activists had really rallied behind President Biden, worked hard to get him into the White House, um, sort of in in contrast to President Trump, who they certainly did not see as an ally. Now, a couple of years into the Biden administration, we've seen that there has not been all that much significant action on climate change. The one small exception being the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which did include some climate provisions. But I think that overall, climate activists are incredibly upset and dissatisfied with President Biden's uh, action on climate change. So yeah, I think that they're pivoting to this more dramatic approach and really asking him to take this uh, sort of top-down executive action to try to make put the points on the board in terms of climate change. But again, something I want to point out here that's kind of that's kind of interesting coming on the heels of this uh, West Virginia versus EPA decision is they're putting all of their chips on executive action, which is proven not as durable as legislative action when it comes to this issue. So again, it may turn out to be counterproductive. I think that is another great point you just made. We talked earlier in the show about the changes that have happened administration to administration from these executive actions. Quill, if President Biden were to declare a national climate emergency, what would be the conditions for ending it? Would it just take a new president to say the emergency is over? From everything that we've seen, when uh, presidents use executive action to uh, to shift climate policy and, and really most types of policy, it flip-flops between administrations. And, and particularly when we're talking about this issue of climate change and also, of course, energy security, uh, consistency is really important. We're talking about the next several decades of trying to ensure affordable, abundant energy while also reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And having policy flip-flop between administrations is going to be, uh, frankly, disastrous. And so um, I, I think that uh, while there is this temptation, I, you know, I understand it. I understand why environmental activists are so frustrated right now. I, I think that 
this is going to be counterproductive because uh, it will engender a lot of backlash from Republicans, a lot of pushback from conservative activists. And I think a much more productive and durable and sustainable route would be to go back to Congress and actually figure out where there is common ground on climate policy. For example, uh, streamlining regulations, exporting natural gas, investing in natural climate solutions, uh, hydrogen is another area that has a lot of bipartisan agreement. Focusing on passing legislation, which is far more durable than executive action, uh, passing legislation on a bipartisan basis is actually the more sustainable route for climate action. And do you see that moving forward? Quill, I know we've got a tough election ahead of us in November, then we'll have a new Congress. It, do you really think there's the potential for some of these bipartisan things to move forward in the legislative process? You know, I, I think that this, you know, if, if President Biden does end up going through with this executive action, it's going to further po polarize this issue. And I think that that would be a real tragedy uh, to further polarize an issue of climate change that has actually gotten somewhat more bipartisan over the last couple of years. We've seen the House Republicans um, over the course of the last couple of months unveil an alternative climate platform. Republicans in Congress are getting more interested in this issue of climate change. Uh, but I think that this action would potentially polarize it and kind of send it in the other direction, particularly on the issue of uh, on the area of natural climate solutions, such as planting trees, promoting precision agriculture, using uh, no-till and cover crops and restoring ecosystems, this whole set of conservation solutions that can really help us in terms of fighting climate change. That's one area in particular that I've been watching that I think does have a lot of bipartisan support. And I've heard some tell that there is interest in Congress um, from Republicans and Democrats to work together on this. I think that that's one area that we could see some progress ahead of the midterms. Uh, but that window is probably closing if this issue gets further polarized. And so that could be hugely counterproductive. So Democrats really need to be careful here as they're, as they're uh, looking ahead and trying to actually make progress on this issue. Absolutely. And not not only are we seeing some some bipartisan solutions on those natural, those conservation ends, but we're seeing them become more and more effective, aren't we? Well, you work with growers all the time or, or producers, folks in the environmental space who are making strides towards reducing their carbon, perhaps without it being a, driven by climate change necessarily, because it's good for the ground, it's good for their bottom line. There are other reasons to make these changes. That's absolutely right. I mean, I think that this is this is one of the areas where we see the most uh, agreement among Americans when it comes to environmental and climate policy. People like planting trees. People like supporting farmers and and, and helping producers, um, you know, implement more of these sustainable practices that, as you said, reduce emissions, but also lead to better yields and better conservation of the soil. This is an area where there is bipartisan agreement. Um, so I, I think that's really important that we focus in on that and actually create the conditions for Congress to make progress on that. Um, so uh, that's an area that I, I think that we need to focus on. And I hope, I really hope that this uh, you know, potential announcement from the administration is, doesn't prove counterproductive in that regard. Right. Let them get their headlines, maybe put this on the back burner. Let's continue to find ways to work together to uh, to improve the environment and make it great. Quill, I know the folks at ACC are always working on this issue, finding free market approaches to improve the environment. Can you tell our listeners where they can go to get some more information and to keep up to speed with what you guys are working on? Sure thing. So if you're interested in finding out more about the American Conservation Coalition, I'd go to acc.eco. We have some great resources there and some great ways to get involved if you're uh, interested in joining the movement and changing narrative. Absolutely, folks. acc.eco. Hop online. Check that out. Keep up to date on what's happening in the world of environmental policy because things are changing. And we've got two years left with the Biden administration, so it's probably fair to guess that things are going to continue to change. This ground will be moving. Quill Robinson, the Vice President of Government Affairs at the American Conservation Coalition. Thank you so much for joining us today. Quill, we appreciate your insight. Thanks for having me. And folks, stay with us. We got some action from the ITC on fertilizer tariffs. We're going to talk with Josh Linville, the Stonex Director of Fertilizer, when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. 
Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Nelson Neal. He's the vice president of CHS Global Research about the current price volatility affecting U.S. farmers and ranchers. Nelson, what's causing the price volatility farmers and ranchers have been experiencing lately? We're talking about supply chain issues. We're talking about labor shortages. We're talking about whether we're going to have exports coming out of Ukraine in terms of corn and, and wheat. We're also talking about broader market forces, uh, higher interest rates, and the potential of a recession setting in here in the U.S. and they're creating what I would call a broad a risk-off type of, of setting and I think you know that certainly manifests itself in the equities markets and stocks and I have to say the commodities are not immune from this type of impact from broader market forces and that's helping to create significant market volatility in corn beans and wheat. Nelson which inputs are being impacted the most by this volatility? I think the short answer, Mike, is is all of them. Uh, whether you're looking at crop protection prices or you're looking at the price of urea or diesel fuel for your farm equipment, or even looking at the prices of, of corn and beans on the other side of the margin equation, none of these have been immune from the volatility and some of the increasing price levels that we have seen. Nelson, how should these market conditions affect purchasing decisions on farms and ranches? They need to pay attention to how they manage their margin and really work with their outside consultants and advisors to better understand landed prices for their products that they're going to put on the land. But they also need to understand pricing opportunities for their crops, opportunities to lock in futures prices and basis prices. The key is to pay attention to their margin, profit margin, and each of those components help to drive that margin. CHS is hosting Around the Table Live on August 4th, where you can hear more from Nelson and other experts on ag price volatility and what you can do to protect your risk. To get more information and to register for Around the Table Live on August 4th, visit chsinc.com slash markets. And thank you for joining us Around the Table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership by visiting cooperativeownership.com. Tune in to AOA the first Wednesday of every month to hear from the National Corn Growers Association in our new segment, The Monthly Grind. Well, NCGA is made up of nearly 40,000 members. And, you know, of that, there's more corn farmers that pay dues into checkoffs. And NCGA manages it with the staff in St. Louis and in D.C. here. We get together, we have the action teams that the officers, John Linder, Chris Edgington, Tom Hegg put together, and we bring everybody's ideas together. And whether you're a small state, a big state, whether you're interested in livestock, new usage, ethanol, everything comes together here. We talk. It's kind of that clearinghouse where all the ideas come together. And, it, you know, it's been done since... Um, you know, NCGA was founded in 1957, so it's very important that uh, 
we have that one voice. This monthly grind recap is sponsored by the National Corn Growers Association. Be sure to tune in the first Wednesday of every month for the monthly grind here on AOA. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. We are talking about the issues impacting agriculture today, and my goodness, there certainly are a lot of them, not the least of which continues to be the markets. The red on the screen, the weakness in the grain complex continues. Corn down 20 to 21 cents. We've got soybeans off 27 to 29 cents so far today, and wheat is turning around. We've gone from in the red to in the green. September wheat up four and a half cents, December up three and half cents. And of course, a lot of growers watching that crop out in the field, thinking back to the cost of fertilizer earlier this spring, and it was brutal. Well, we got some good news yesterday on the retail price levels of fertilizer. Joining me now to talk about it is Josh Linville, the vice president of fertilizer over at StoneX. And Josh, I understand ITC made a decision yesterday on tariffs. Are we going to see additional tariffs on Trinidad, Tobago and Russian UAN? Yeah, we saw the uh, announcement come out yesterday, and in a shock to the system, uh, these cases, if you look historically, they are basically a rubber stamp yes. So we had been talking, there's a higher chance of maybe a no vote. Never truly believed we would see it happen, but here we are. Uh, ITC came out, and they have voted no. Uh, there will be no tariffs on Trinidad and Russia-produced uh, UAN imports into the U.S. market. Josh, and it's so fascinating. You mentioned we were not expecting this no vote. The Department of Commerce investigated. They found that these three countries were dumping UAN onto American shores, but then they hand it to the ITC to make the, the decision on the ruling, and they decided no. Do you think that was because of the pressure from legislators and farmers here across the countryside? I think it has a lot, uh, big part to do with it. Now, these cases are not supposed to have a political slant. They are not supposed to have outside pressure. The the decision is supposed to be made based on the data that's submitted to the groups. And that's where they came up with the preliminary duty, yes. This is where they came up with the duty rate. So to your point, yeah, there was a lot of information that backed the narrative. Yes, there's a case here. And I, I think that's why in the back of my mind, I think, yeah, this, uh, this pressure that we saw, not only from the trade groups, but also there's probably a certain amount of political pressure placed on them as well. I think that got to be too much. And they said, nope, we, uh, we can't approve this today. All right, Josh. Well, let's talk through what this means for producers. We saw imports from Russia, Trinidad, and Tobago decline substantially when this uh, investigation was announced. Will these three countries be coming back into the U.S. market full force now? I... I believe that the Trinidad imports will come back full force. Uh, you look at where, obviously, they're located very close. The U.S. is a natural supply line. Um, you know, Russia is a little bit of a question mark. I do think they return very, very close to normal. Um, maybe a little bit of backing off just because some of the export caps that the Russian government has put into place. But overall, uh, when you look at our imports through the last several years, those two countries have accounted for about 80% of the UA and imports into the U.S. So I think a vast majority of those tons will show back up and create a little bit more competition in the sector. All right. Well, competition typically brings down those prices. Josh, UAN has been consistently more expensive than urea. Do you think they're going to get a little more comparable here after this decision? Yes, I think it's what you're going to see, and a lot of people are going to think, oh, this means UAN is going to, you know, summer 2020 value is very, very cheap. That's not the case. UAN is still part of the nitrogen family, so it still needs to work as a differential to urea, as a differential to anhydrous. Um, given where urea is, we do think that UAN prices are going to drop fairly significantly from where they are today. Uh, it's definitely going to see pressure with the increase of competition. And where UAN has been a major, massive uh, premium versus urea, we think that it gets more in line, maybe even money, maybe a little bit of a discount at certain points. All right, Josh. Well, more broadly speaking, how is the urea market holding up here uh, internationally? It's actually holding. Uh, we're seeing a little bit of renewed trade this morning, NOLA and uh, internationally. Prices are holding fairly steady. And it's a, it, you know, you've got some very major bull and bearish factors uh, going on out there. On the bullish side, the European theater is still dealing with very high natural gas price, where 
its cost in producing there, we're estimating around $1,000 USD to produce one ton of urea. So we're kind of worried that we are going to see uh, see production go down there, which hurts supplies. But on the flip side, uh, when you look at some of the things that are going around the world, you got grain prices that are falling. You got buyers that are very, very uh, reluctant to step forward. It's turned into a little bit of a stalemate. Josh, that $1,000 a ton production price for the cost of urea in Europe is staggering. Do you know offhand, I mean, what was that cost two, three years ago? $500, $250? Has it doubled or tripled? Oh, if you look at the natural gas price, uh, you know, it used to be kind of similar to here in the U.S. You know, you're talking two, three, or I'm sorry, three, four, five, six dollars in the MBTU equivalent. Uh, here recently, $40, $50 has become the norm. So, I mean, you were talking probably well uh, sub 250 and today it's at 1000 it, It's up huge. That is absolutely staggering. That just highlights the upheaval that this sector has seen over the past two years. With that being the case, Josh, of course, we've been looking at international trade. Any chance China's going to begin their export regime again on uh, phosphates? Yes, uh, we got an announcement here is about a week and a half ago. Uh, the government announced that they will be exporting up to 3.6 million tons of all phosphate products. Now, this is DAP and MAP. This is, you know, calcium phosphate and, and products like this. So it's a whole range. And if you look at that 3.6 million, we don't know when it's through. But even if we look at it through the remainder of December, that's still smaller than what is considered normal. But at this point, a lot in the marketplace had expected to see nothing. So any increase on exports is beneficial. All right. That's coming to the market on the potash front. Any, any big changes there? No, nothing on the potash side. Um, unfortunately, the big pivot point that we're looking at is still Belarus uh, and actually Lithuania. Uh, Belarus has still got the capacity to produce enough product to ship around the world, but Lithuania continues to not allow their shipments through its country and out to sea. And without that export arm, they're shut off to the world. So, Gotcha. Lithuania is like the pass-through pass, pass through to the export port. Yeah. It, it never in my life, I think I'd spend so much time looking at Lithuania, but they are the linchpin for the, the world potash market today. I'll be darned. This industry continues to change. Josh Linville keeps his finger on the pulse of it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Josh. Always appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on, sir. And folks, thanks for tuning in to AOA today. We'll be back tomorrow preparing for Friday's Cattle on Feed report. We look forward to you tuning in then. Until then, folks, stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 B.C. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network.